Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 125 of Energy Talks, and today I'm going to be talking to Dan McFadden, who is an executive fellow at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, and the co-author of a new study titled North American Carbon Exchange. Now, this is a fascinating idea. Uh, basically, the authors are arguing for a further integration of the energy systems of Canada, the United States, and Mexico, and the establishment of a carbon exchange that covers those three countries. Think in terms of the uh, European Union uh, carbon market. So welcome to the interview, Dan. Uh, thank you, Markham. And on behalf of my uh, co-authors, uh, Leonardo Beltran and Dr. Michael Moore, it's a pleasure to uh, spend some time with you. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. This is a, uh, it's a bit of a nerdy topic, uh, but anybody who's interested in, in energy uh, will, I think, really appreciate your paper and hopefully our discussion will make it interesting for them. So let's start with maybe just a brief overview of what your paper is arguing, please. Sure. So this began with a conversation amongst the three of us of looking at the, at really the continental energy markets. As you know, we have a, a significant amount of, uh, of of interconnection, but those markets between Mexico, the U.S., and Canada aren't fully integrated. And so we were looking at the uh, at the challenges and opportunities of how we could gain more uh, benefit from the uh, the greater integration of those three markets, and that led us to looking at some of the the most significant challenges and opportunities facing that. And of course, two things came to the fore. One is just energy security writ large amongst the three jurisdictions. That's fundamental to uh, health, safety, and, and uh, economic performance. And next, and then, and then secondly, uh, the, the, the threat of climate change and uh, how that's gonna impact energy systems, but how it also will perhaps drive uh, the opportunity for greater integration of, of the of the energy systems amongst the three countries. I have to ask, uh, we've seen energy security uh, take the the front, uh, the, you know, the the stage this this year over the last year uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the energy crisis that that precipitated in Europe. We don't talk a lot about how that you know, Europe's response to it and its ability to, its willingness to pay more for LNG, for example, has raised prices and sucked supply out of, out of regions like the Asia Pacific. Uh, yes. So everybody now is worried about energy security and China's role in this as the, the world's largest importer, uh, it plays a, a big role in it. But it, it seems like the say three blocks, Asia Pacific, Europe, and, and North America are starting to think of themselves as a block again. 
and they're friend-shoring industries, for example, and they're looking at trading more with uh, with trusted partners uh, and, and thinking about trading less with not-so-trusted partners like Russia and China. Did that trend play into your thinking? Well, it certainly emerged as we were as we were working on, on the paper. We do make reference in the paper to the the, the threats of geopolitical uh, instability and and military interventions and things like that as a as a general threat threat to global energy security, and that drove us to think more and more about the significant opportunity we have in in North America uh, to uh, to manage that 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 threat amongst the three jurisdictions. Particularly with the extensive resource base that's that's extent in the three jurisdictions. I mean, we are very rich in energy resources. When I talk of energy resources, I'm talking energy resources writ, writ large, from uh, hydropower resources to uh, to fossil energy to renewable energy. Um, so I'm talking about energy writ large. Let's talk about hydrocarbons because oil and gas trade has dominated the discussion. Uh, in Canada for a long time, and I'm I'm thinking in terms of uh, pipelines, uh, primarily oil, but not necessarily exclusively, because there's been uh, uh, some discussion, particularly in Alberta, about uh, gas uh, exports to the U.S. and LNG opportunities. But it seems to me now, Dan, I I haven't done a lot of work in this, so uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems to me that since at least the 1970s, there's there's there was a deliberate construction of an integrated uh, oil and gas system between the U.S. and Canada. Canada's all of Canada's exports go to the U.S. Uh, Canada uh, yeah. U.S. exports quite a bit of of oil and gas into Eastern Canada because they can do it at a lower lower transportation cost than than uh, than the West can, and. That is, I, I know it was deliberate, and I know there was a lot of support within the industry for it years ago. But then, over the last decade, there's been a lot of complaining about it because what that means is, you know, for instance, the oil sands complains that that's they're tied to one customer, and exactly. and so might that political opposition that's been festering out there for a decade might not that uh, are you know uh, create opposition. So the kind of integration on the hydrocarbon side that you're talking about? Well, we're really talking about, I mean, the integration primarily exists on the hydrocarbon side. I mean, we we, we have an extensive network of, of, of pipelines uh, that, that, that move energy north and south across the Canada-US border and across the, the, the Mexican-US border. So we're not really talking about expanding that that infrastructure. We're talking about the opportunity of really decarbonizing uh, that that flow of, of of fossil fuels across the border, and in that sense, I think there would be strong support for that because that's a that's an objective that uh, that 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 the industry is looking forward to now. As you can see with the the Pathways Alliance and their commitment to uh, net zero by 2050. So. I, we don't see the same uh, the same resistance in terms of um, the, uh, the 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 decarbonization of the of it, and and so I think it would uh, it would uh, it would it would supplement and actually encourage that 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 trade because even if you take oil sands for example, the more we decarbonize them, the more they come at attractive fuel uh, for processing in the U.S. So we don't quite see it 
in, in that same context, we think it's more of a, a, a complementary activity to, to support, supplement and support that flow of energy back and forth across the borders. Okay, that's hydrocarbons. Now let's talk about electricity. Uh, there was a study yeah. came out a year or two ago from the National Renewable Energy Lab in uh, the U.S. So one of the big U.S. Uh, government-funded yes. laboratories. And I interviewed the, co the the lead author on it, and he was talking about, I think, uh, $200 billion of uh, economic advantage um, if if it were the greater integration between the U.S. and, and Canada. Um and so I understand the the benefits of more uh, north south uh, trade in electricity, better more integration between the Canadian and U.S. systems. But there's also been an argument going on for some time that there ought to be more east west trade in Canada, particularly because you've got you know the you're located in in Alberta, which has uh, terrific uh, wind and solar resources, same in Saskatchewan. In BC, you've got hydro, Manitoba, you've got hydro, uh, hydro connect mm -hmm. as almost like a big battery for intermittent renewables. And then of course, on the in the east, you've got Man uh, Ontario sitting right next to to mm -hmm. Quebec, which just said today it wants to build more uh, hydro uh, hydro dams uh, yep. between now and 2050. So a couple of questions here. One, and in in terms of greater integration, does that mean that it's not just north and south we can talk about, but also east and west? Because if we're if we're talking about improving efficiencies and bringing on more renewables and decarbonizing the system as it grows, because it's going to have to double or triple by twenty fifty, then it seems that east and west and north and south has got to be part of the discussion. Yes, yeah. One of the uh, one of the um situations that we face in Canada is because of the uh, uh, the the uh, the, the um, split between federal and provincial jurisdictions we've actually ended up in Canada with uh, 13 electricity markets because each province or jurisdiction really can set the terms and conditions of their uh, of their electricity market and in 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 several of those jurisdictions those energy markets are are dominated by by crown corporations which creates a a certain dynamic and that's always been uh, uh been probably the most significant barrier to to east west trade in that in that they've used those those um those energy markets for other purposes than supplying electricity from time to time be it economic development be be whatever it is so, yes, we believe there's an opportunity and there should be more east-west trade. I think there's tremendous opportunity in Canada. What we're seeing right now with climate change, though, is starting to be a, a more of a, a levelization. We're not all the way there yet of the carbon intensity of electricity production. And I think um, uh, uh, a carbon exchange could accelerate that, in which case it would remove one more barrier going forward over the long term in terms of more east-west uh, electricity trade. The north-south trade was always because it was an economic opportunity for Canadian electricity suppliers because we could generally produce electricity more cheaply. That's particularly true in BC and, and, and Quebec. Uh, the other interconnections in Canada were largely for reliability purposes. Uh, and, and so we think there's an opportunity uh, with the levelization of the of the carbonization of the uh, of the electricity sector, encourage more east-west trade. What about um, uh, new fuels? And I'm thinking here primarily of sustainable aviation fuel 
and mm-hmm. and hydrogen and uh, just about every pro- Canadian province now has yeah. a hydrogen strategy. Alberta is moving ahead with theirs fairly quickly, uh, mainly because it's being driven by uh, actors, uh, non-government actors. I'm thinking primarily of the uh, Edmonton Regional uh, Hydrogen Hub, which is, but it has industry and it has academics and it has non-governmental organizations, plus the governments sit all all at the table. And so they're making pretty good uh, progress uh, on developing uh, that Edmonton region as a uh, hydrogen supply hub. Um, but there's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter in Alberta about, you know, hydrogen exports. We're going to send it off to Asia or someplace. Mm-hmm. And the experts that I talk to uh, think that's unlikely, just given the characteristics, the chemical characteristics of hydrogen. But maybe a little north-south trade. Mm-hmm. A little east-west trade in hydrogen yeah. uh, might might work, uh, yeah. and the same with sustainable aviation fuel. That seems yeah. to have uh, be gathering some. How would these other uh, sources of energy work into into a North American e- energy integration strategy? Well, any any energy source that that that, that creates. I mean, to establish the, the the marketplace, you first of all have to set a, a global emissions envelope for. Uh, each of the three jurisdictions within that, uh, you have to set an emissions limit for each of the sectors within within that, and then you set a budget, and so that budget will will be then spread out amongst the the the, the players in the, in in that sector. So in the energy sector, um, it'll create the opportunity for fuels like hydrogen that will be able to offer a carbon credit. Uh, to start to develop because they will be able to sell those credits to perhaps other markets like the oil sands as they as they make their transition towards zero energy. One of their besides carbon carbon capture utilization and storage, they may look to hydrogen uh, buying some buying some credit offsets to uh, to do that. So the market um, is is in a way agnostic to fuel type. It's more referencing whether there's a uh, a credit or a deficit with respect to your emissions uh, envelope and the allocation of emissions within that envelope in the sector. So uh, it's it's kind of agnostic with respect to uh, with respect to fuel type. For example, um, you know, an oil sands producer that that has surplus carbon capture and utilization credits could well uh, sell those credits back into the marketplace. So it's it's kind of agnostic. It's really about whether there's a, a decarbonization benefit uh, from that fuel type. Well, we, we've uh, segued nicely into the discussion about the carbon exchange. And maybe we could pull back a little bit, uh, Dan, and have you give us uh, an overview of how that would work. Yeah, well, basically it's it's it operates, as you say, like like other carbon exchanges. Around the world, and and there's examples of regional carbon exchanges in North America right now working the the, the western one, the, the the California one, but they're very limited and they're very regional in 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 concept, and and they don't cover the breadth of the uh, of the uh, of the industrial and and other sectors out there. So this would look to establish, if you will, a First of all, the three governments have to come together and be committed to decarbonization, and generally they are. They all generally um, coming out of the uh, the UNFCC and, and and organizations like that. 
have committed to to, uh, to significant decarbonization by 2050. Both the U.S. and and Canada have specifically committed to net zero by 2050. Slightly different pathways to get there. Mexico is moving in that direction. Hasn't firmed up a commitment yet. So it begins with that premise. They're all committed to 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 decarbonization and net zero emissions by 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 2050. And so within that, then uh, the three uh, jurisdictions would look to establish a global um, carbon budget for the North American continent. And based on the individual contributions to that, each nation would have a share of that carbon budget. Uh, then within that carbon budget, you'd break it down by sector and allocate a carbon budget by, by sector, and then allocate that amongst the major players. In the initial instance, this is really um, aimed at the at the major industrial sectors, who you can easily track and 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 manage those those emissions. But it could expand beyond that once it becomes more uh, more sophisticated. And so, within each sector, you would set a carbon budget and allocate that out amongst the uh, sector players. And then, over time, uh, that carbon budget would have a diminishing ceiling to it. And so that creates an incentive to invest in in uh, in decarbonization. And depending on where you're at, you're either above or below that budget you've been given. If you're above it, you have to look for credits or some other mechanism to get you down to that budget. If you're below it, then you have credits to sell into that marketplace to other players who are above it. Uh, we think it will create the incentive, first of all, by setting the budgets and uh, setting the ceilings and the and the limits. It creates an incentive to decarbonize by having a carbon trading market, it will uh, in, in, in encourage innovation and uh, adaptation of new decarbonization technologies across the sector. So it, it basically works in that, that in that shape as, a, as an exchange of trading credits for those who are over or under, depending on their circumstance within the budget. Now, um, this, it, it seems like a form of uh, carbon pricing and uh, many Canadian uh jurisdictions already have a carbon price, whether it's the federal backstop uh, yeah. system or like in the case of uh, Alberta, it has the tier system, which uses yeah. output-based pricing and, and a carbon yeah. tax. How do those existing carbon pricing systems, how would they work with this exchange? It's really two different approaches. The, the carbon pricing systems are more of a, a form of taxation. This is a market-based approach. So they're slightly slightly different 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 approaches but they have the same um purpose and outcome and that's to encourage investment and innovation in, in decarbonization so i think um, it's easy to to move from one one to the other we think this is a more efficient and effective system because with a taxation system generally what's happening you're collecting dollars into a central pool and then finding a mechanism to uh, to reallocate those, which means somebody's making a decision somewhere about how best to allocate those dollars. We think a marketplace is the best way to uh, to to allocate those dollars, and so that's we see the advantage of a of a uh, of a of a uh, a market based system is that it, it it lends itself to natural innovation, other than somebody sort of saying, "Well, we think this technology is or that one's the winner." The market has always, I think, been proved to. Uh, to uh, to uh, be a pretty effective allocator of resources, and so that's really our fundamental difference with uh, with using a a carbon pricing or taxation format. 
Now, um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, Professor Danny Cullenward from uh, Stanford. He and um, David G. Victor had written a book uh, about carbon policy, and they argued that the kind of approach that you're talking about, whether it be uh, you know carbon tax, whether it be a cap and trade, whether it be a carbon exchange, uh, was inherently limited by politics because you know, for whatever reason, and it needed to be uh, supplemented with industrial policy. So we're talking about, you mentioned the carbon capture utilization and storage uh, for the oil sands. That would be an example of, of, of industrial policy where government comes in and provides, it could be subsidies, it could be other kinds of incentives or, you know, sticks and carrots. Uh, yeah. to get what the government wants. So mm -hmm. what's your take on that? Do we need what the three countries need industrial policy to supplement the carbon exchange or is the carbon exchange enough on its own? Uh, that's, a, I, I think, a, a, a very good question. And, and we didn't really explore that in, in detail. Certainly, um, you know, industrial policy can complement and, uh, and, and, and accelerate. Uh, certain kinds of of technologies into the marketplace, and you know, I think it's 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 a proven fact that that over history, um, launching some new technologies often requires a little bit of a boost beyond just a marketplace. So I think there's a there's there's space for that, uh, but it may it may it may lessen the the burden on the on the uh, industrial policy by having this other driver there over the long run but certainly the two can work uh, can work hand in hand and uh, and i think for you know like new technologies like hydrogen there's still a lot of uh, a lot of questions that that need to be answered and there where the government can support research and development uh, that can accelerate those technologies once they get into the market sphere then i think the uh, the the carbon market can help uh, can help accelerate those those transformations into uh, into market technologies yeah, anything that uh, leads to a, a more uh, efficient allocation of public dollars, I think, is is a good idea because, right. I mean, there are uh, uh, public dollars are scarce. They have to be allocated right. correctly, and you know the big debate. Uh, the American uh, listeners may not realize this, but in Canada, there's a big debate about you know how much money should be going into things like carbon capture, uh, utilization, and storage. So the oil sand says. Uh, and it produces about 60% uh, of all Canadian oil, 80% of Alberta oil. And the Pathways Alliance, which is represents all of the, the, the major uh, oil mm -hmm. sands producers, uh, they're, to get to net zero by 2050 will cost $75 billion. Yes. And they want governments, primarily the Canadian government, to pay two-thirds of that. Well, $50, is, or $50 billion is a big wad of cash. That could, of choke, cash. that could choke a horse. Yeah. And yeah. and and then the question becomes: Well, if we had, if the if the government of Canada had fifty billion dollars to spend, would it be better to spend it on decarbonizing uh, a product that for which you know the IA says peak peak demand is coming in twenty thirty? Bloomberg says the same thing, or would it be better to take that fifty billion dollars and invest it in renewables or up and coming you know de uh, uh, risk emerging? Uh, uh, low carbon technologies that Canada could then have a competitive advantage in, you know, that's the, it's not a much of a debate at this or conversation at this point, but that's, there's that conversation is taking place. And I think it's a fair one. 
And and if I understand you correctly, Dan, uh, you and your co-authors would argue that the the carbon exchange that you're thinking of would help to reallocate that money more efficiently so that the emerging technologies, the low carbon technologies aren't starved of of support, whether that's from the private capital or from public capital. Yes, exactly. I mean, the marketplace has always been a pretty efficient allocator of uh, of, of of resources, and we think it can uh, it can help in that in that dynamic. We're not saying that there's still not, as I said earlier, a role for uh, for some public investment in uh, in critical critical technologies. And I think one of the issues we're looking at, we're looking at a fairly long time frame here. We're looking at you know a transition that's occurring over 30, 30 plus years, right? And so I think there's room for for both. What the appropriate balance is, that's uh, that's that's a huge question. It is driven a lot by uh, by politics and the political interest of the uh, of of the day. And you can never write that out of the equation. But I think if we were to think more broadly about what are all the tools we can bring together that would help in the efficiency of that allocation, then we'd be better off. Or for something like carbon capture and utilization, if there's a credit to be had there that has a market value, that would help finance because people may be prepared, other industries that maybe don't have right now the opportunity for uh, developing the credits, that would create an incentive that could help offset perhaps some of the public investment that's being uh, being called for by that by the industry. It's yeah, a very I, I, commitment and a very bold commitment that the uh, the oil sands are making. So kudos to them for that. At least what? Well, it's pretty bold when you're asking governments to to pay for <laughs> two thirds of your two thirds of the project that you're proposing. And uh, I'm on record as saying that uh, just uh, uh, paying fifty billion dollars uh, to build a, a carbon pipeline and then some collector, uh, you know, bolting some equipment on plants and building some connector pipelines and burying the carbon is not the, the best use of $50 billion. Uh, there's gotta be more to it than that, but that grist for another conversation. Then. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, uh, what about negotiating this? Because it seems to me that, uh, this is a, would be a big undertaking. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, uh, to get a carbon exchange. Right, but- no, you. Uh, uh, how long do you think it would take if if there was the political will? Well, I, I think it's a, it's 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 not a it's not a, a three week process, and hopefully it's uh, it's more in the range of a of a three year process. I mean, we have examples of significant integration of our economies through something like the now the USMCA, the United States uh, uh, Canada Mexico Trade Agreement, which which has a lot of moving parts. And when governments put their mind to it, um, they're, they're, they, 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 they can get these things done. We propose an approach in the paper to how they could do that. And that would be to uh, establish a task force where there'd be senior envoys uh, from each of the three countries designated as the lead negotiators for that. They would be supported by senior officials from the appropriate departments, the energy, natural resource departments, environments, finance departments, uh, trade departments, et cetera, and begin the process of developing, if you will, a, a, a framework for this carbon exchange, which in the, in the first instance would be the, uh, the you know, sort of the scope and authority, its principles, objectives, and purposes, and the legal and organizational framework. And, you know, I, I all my, myself spent uh, lots of time in government earlier in my career. And uh, when governments put their minds to things, they can move pretty, pretty quickly, relatively speaking. And so we don't think it's 
you know, we don't think it's an impossible task by any means. We've negotiated other environmental uh, agreements before, transboundary environmental agreements before, and uh, and they've been quite successful in their implementation. So we think there's a pathway there, but it requires, first of all, the commitment to decarbonization, um, a commitment to uh, to um, uh, of the three countries to be serious about this, sit down. Um, the other thing they need to do is have early engagement of all stakeholders. And so that it's open and transparent as possible and have that input uh, as, as a strong information base as they design the program. So we've laid out a, a pathway there that uh, we think is uh, is doable. And, and uh, you know, there's some, some pretty significant examples of how this has been successfully in the past. I'll, I'll tell you why I think this might be a good uh, idea, uh, Dan. Uh, this is just my take on this. And, you know, I... I, I did my master's uh, thesis on uh, the energy transition in the in Canada. Primarily, it was basically the transition from from uh, horses and steam uh, to uh, internal combustion engine equipment like tractors mm -hmm. and combines and so on. So in, in Saskatchewan, nineteen hundred and nineteen thirty. So, but it's an, it was part of that energy transition uh, to the internal combustion engine, and the uh, one of the things that. Uh, became apparent is that while the you can you can put a, a begin a beginning date and an end date on an energy transition for convenience sake the, the fact is the evolution of the energy system goes on and on and on and our energy system is is not only changing dramatically but it's going to be changing dramatically long past 2050 yes and and so we we uh, we often talk about you know net zero by 2050 or one point limiting global warming to 1.5 C by 2050 all of that kind of stuff, but but in fact the the changes that are coming in the global that are started already in the global energy system are so profound, they are so uh, they're such big structural changes that we need if we can put in place uh, institutions like this mechanisms like this that will work for decades and decades to to make us more competitive and 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 lower carbon and and so on that could be a huge economic and competitive advantage for the north american uh clean energy industry absolutely and as you say the transition is not going to happen overnight i mean energy infrastructure takes years to build and it's not just easily transformed. And you talked about the challenge of hydrogen earlier. Transporting hydrogen, unless you've got another carrier for it, is a very difficult um, element to transfer because it's small molecular size. Uh, when we think of the electrification of the auto industry, we're starting to come to grips with now that the challenge of actually setting up uh, a charging network that, that, that makes sense and building up those kinds of infrastructures doesn't happen uh, because you want it to happen. It requires uh, a lot of planning, uh, a lot of uh, regulatory coherence that this carbon exchange is one of the things that would help to sort out is the regulatory coherence amongst between jurisdictions, because that would be essential in order to, uh, to effectively um, uh, creating these markets. So I think there's some, there's, there's some, there's some both short-term but very long-term advantages here about helping us think through the uh, the transformation of energy infrastructures because there's trillions invested in energy infrastructures uh, around the globe and in North America and transforming those uh, comes uh, at a pace and a cost that that has to be done in a way that's uh, 
both timely, but also uh, supports the, the broader goals of security, economic development, and all of those kinds of things. And we think a, a carbon market could lend itself to, uh, to effectively uh, helping with that transition. Final question, Dan. And by the way, when I say final question in an interview, it's never the final question. <laughs> so be, pre be prepared. Uh, just last week, the International Energy Agency released its technology perspectives report for 2023, yeah. and it was an earth shaker. And I, we were just beginning to get our, wrap our heads around it. But basically what it said was, okay, we have an energy transition that's been going on for decades, but now it's got to the point where we have to start thinking about, oh, we're going to switch to electric cars. How are we going to make those? How are we, how are we going to build those supply chains? We, yeah. want to, we want to decarbonize our buildings. And we're going to use heat pumps. How are we going to manufacture millions exactly. and millions and millions of heat pumps? So now it becomes an industrial issue. How mm -hmm. do we industrialize to, to manufacture all of the clean energy technology that we need? And, and the IEA didn't pull any punches. I mean, it says this is the most profound industrial revolution since the 18th century. Yeah. And so Canada... Uh, well, North America understands now, I think, that it had ceded the manufacturing and industry leadership to China, and suddenly it wakes up in 2022, 2023, and goes, oh, 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 China's now a decade ahead of us in a lot of this stuff. So we, if if we want to be competitive and have a prosperous, you know, lifestyle going forward, we have to do this. And of course, that's the impetus behind the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. All of which to say. How might a carbon exchange not only facilitate the switch from fossil fuels to low carbon energy, but also the industrialization that has to go along with that or should go along with that? Yeah, well, I think it 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 complements it. It 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 does create a pool of financial resources out there that 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 you know, depending on how you create the uh, the uh, the rules of the carbon market, um, you know, perhaps um, there could be some consideration for uh, the manufacturing of, of 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 products that decarbonize the market. Are they eligible for credits or not? I don't have an answer on that, and we didn't go that far in in the paper because that wasn't the purpose of the paper at this point. But there are all kinds of of ways you could look at. What are the rules that uh, you establish for a carbon trading market, and 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 who can trade in and out of that market? So, could manufacturers of uh, of uh, low carbon energy devices uh, receive credits in comparison to the the products that are already in the market? And is that a credit that could be fungible and tradable? I don't know. It's it's a conceptual approach, but it's something that that one could look at in the design of the marketplace, and that would then facilitate those things. Uh, but you raise a you raise a great point about the transition, and and I think that sometimes the naivety of governments in not thinking their way through those issues, the supply chain to meet that transition is not there yet, and getting it there is going to be a huge challenge. But more than that, we haven't thought about okay, even if we can develop the supply chains to produce all those solar panels and all those batteries, what are we going to do with them at the end of life? Because we can just be creating another huge environmental problem for ourselves that we haven't anticipated yet. I mean, solar panels have a life of, let's say, normally 20 years. 
Right now, there's very limited capacity to recycle those or all those batteries that we're going to produce, right? You know, how are we going to manage all of that? So, I mean, all of these systems have their own issues and challenges. And so you need to think your way through those much more holistically than we have. You know, it's a little late to start developing a critical uh, mineral st strategy, but I guess better late than never. Uh, but, uh, you know, China certainly had our, our number on that one uh, a long time ago, as you mentioned. What? Yeah, they certainly did. And I'd have to say, this is just an observation from the the reporting that I've done and the interviews that I've done. But within Canada in particular, um, we used to do industrial policy prior to 1980. And I guess we, you know, there are people I've interviewed who who would argue that we've always done an industrial policy. Fair yeah. enough. But the kind we did and the scale at which we did it uh what changed after 1980 we we went to different kinds of market-based policies and yeah. gov less government intervention that sort of thing and so within the federal government in particular there isn't there isn't a lot of expertise no you know the people who used to do the kind of policy that we need now uh, have long retired and and you the, the institutional memory has been lost and so they're everybody's scrambling around trying to find experts and find research and you know think about new uh, approaches, uh, you know, all in a very short period of time. And it it doesn't lead for maybe the most thoughtful and uh, you know a policy process. But nevertheless, this is the situation we're in. And I think that what you've presented here, you and your co-authors, is maybe a potential you know contribution to that and worthy of worthy of consideration, because frankly, we need all the ideas we can get. Yes. And uh, I, I assume that you're getting some, you know, interest uh, from uh, from the public sphere uh, in your work. Well, it's it's early days, so we've just we've just published it. So uh, so we're getting, uh, uh, you know, uh, a reasonable amount of media attention, which usually then 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 has the trickle down effect. <laughs> Having spent all those years in the public sector myself, you know, if you create enough momentum around an issue, eventually the public service and the politicians wake up and say, well, maybe we should start paying attention to all of this. So, well, I like the way you say trickle down, not trickle up. <laughs> well, look, Dan, thank you very much for this. Uh, uh, I'm going to follow this issue with uh, considerable interest and uh, we'll look forward to having you on again. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been, uh, it's been a delight. And uh, on behalf of my co-author, I thank you for the opportunity for speaking with you. Thank you.